in 3, 2, 1. Events move quickly in the world of US foreign policy, and it's easy to miss certain developments amid the deluge of information. With our main podcast series, we look to go in-depth into the state of US ties with certain countries. But sometimes, it's also good to zoom in on specific issues and bring everyone on the same page. That's where we come in. Welcome to Ask USP, a series of short episodes to explain noteworthy developments in US foreign policy and related issues. Get yourself comfortable, and we'll get you up to speed. Hi everyone, welcome to the second episode of Ask USP, a short podcast series by the US program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, or RSIS. I'm Kevin, an Associate Research Fellow with USP, and I'll be your host for this episode. To recap, the Ask USP podcasts are explainer episodes in which we bring everyone up to speed on pertinent regional issues, things that deserve their own spotlight, but might be overlooked in the main podcast line due to time constraints or relevance to the broader episode topic. For this episode, we're going to look at the US credibility problem in Asia, an issue that represents a potential stumbling block for US strategy in the region. Joining us today is my colleague, Dr. Evan Resnick, a senior associate fellow at RSIS and an expert in international relations and US foreign policy. He wrote an op-ed on this very topic last month, and I'll include a link to the article in the description of this episode. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Kevin. What do you mean by the U.S. credibility problem in Asia? What exactly does this problem entail? Credibility is a very important concept in international security affairs. You could also define credibility as stakes or interests. For example, the United States recently withdrew from the war in Afghanistan and was defeated by the Taliban, even though the United States was the most powerful great power in the history of civilization and couldn't defeat the Taliban. So power can only get you part of the way in terms of getting what you want in international politics. Credibility is also crucial. Resolve. How important is the issue to you as opposed to your adversary? Great powers have learned again and again over time, just in the last few decades, that you could be very powerful as compared to your adversary. But if your adversary cares more about the outcome of a dispute, that is just as important in determining the outcome of, say, deterrence or coercion or in the final analysis of war itself. The United States lost in Vietnam, it lost in Afghanistan, it fought to very costly stalemate at best in Iraq. All of these adversaries were much weaker than the United States, but cared much more about the outcome. So in thinking about the importance of credibility, resolve and stakes in general, I thought about the situation currently existing in East Asia, where the United States and China are increasingly involved in an increasingly acrimonious relationship The United States being the longtime hegemonic power in the region and China being the rising upstart. And I was thinking about sort of how important credibility would be to this increasingly tense state of affairs between these two major powers, the two biggest powers in the world. And I'm concerned because it looks like no matter what the United States does, it has what I call a credibility problem. The United States tries to fight for every piece of turf in the region against Chinese aggression or expansionism. It runs into the credibility problem that it just doesn't care enough about these things as compared with Beijing. So from the perspective of Beijing, the situation in the East China Sea, the disposition of the various island chains in the South China Sea, the fate of Taiwan, these are issues of existential importance to the People's Republic of China. None of these are vital interests of the United States. In other words, none of these issues, East China Sea, South China Sea, Taiwan, are make or break 
issues of national survival for the U.S. They're important interests to the United States, surely, but they're not vital in the way that they are to China. So if we extrapolate from the negative cases of Vietnam, Afghanistan for both the U.S. and the Soviets, Iraq, and now we're looking at China, which is much more powerful than any of those prior adversaries, China also cares a lot more about the outcome of these disputes than the U.S. does. That doesn't bode well for a hawkish or interventionist U.S. policy in the region. Conversely, if you're more dovish on the matter, and I am, if the United States pulls out of these areas, in the very unlikely event the Biden administration decides, look, it's not worth our while to fight over the East and South China Seas and Taiwan because China cares much more about these places than we do. So let's just give them to China as a sort of sphere of influence. Well, if it does that, then the U.S. is going to freak out its allies in the region who are going to think, you know, Japan, Philippines, Australia, Thailand, South Korea, who are going to suddenly think, oh, no, the United States is giving in. It's appeasing China. Are we next? Are these alliance commitments worth anything to us? Are they just scraps of paper that the U.S. will abandon us because it doesn't want to fight on our behalf either? And also, I mean, something I didn't get into in the op-ed, but another consideration is, what if Beijing decides, wow, that was really easy. <laughs> I really care a lot about these territories and the U.S. just gave them to me on a silver platter. Maybe I should sort of reach for some more. So there are credibility issues on both sides, whether the United States takes a hawkish position and tries to defend every inch of turf against Chinese expansion, or conversely, if it cedes these territories over to China as a sphere of influence. So it's a problematic situation for the United States in learning how to achieve sort of a stable great power relationship with China. So in that case, then, may I ask, what is Washington currently doing to find a middle path between these two positions, the dovish one and the hawkish one? And what more do you think can be done? It looks to me like the last three administrations, Obama, Trump and Biden, are not trying to find a middle ground. They're increasingly pursuing a more hawkish stance towards the Chinese. If you start with Obama's pivot to East Asia, increasing troop deployments, revitalizing U.S. alliances. Under Trump, you have the initiation of the Quad Agreement. You have increasingly tough policy on trade with the Chinese. And Biden is just continuing those things. You know, Trump and Biden have also talked about the need to defend Taiwan at various points, right? If China attacks, both Trump and Biden have at least strongly insinuated, if not said outright, that they would defend Taiwan. George W. Bush said the same thing during his administration, even though that's not formal U.S. policy. So what seems to me to be happening over the last several years is that U.S. policy is becoming increasingly hardline, increasingly rigid against the Chinese. I would imagine that in the coming months and years, you're going to see increasing U.S. commitments to defend the region against Chinese encroachments, not less. That's very true. Given the mood in Washington and across the country at the moment, I imagine that there's not much space or appetite for warmer ties with Beijing. Even sort of a, a, a minor thawing in relations is seen as a big move, as opposed to sort of like just granting China a sphere of influence over the South and East China Seas, for instance. That's unthinkable. That's really unthinkable. Irrespective of whether it's prudent or not, it's just it's in policy terms, I can't imagine any administration, Republican or Democrat, agreeing to that. So in that context, then, where do you see the U.S.-China relationship going from here? I'm going to answer your question in a bit of a roundabout way. It seems to me that the only way that this great power competition that's emerging in the region is going to remain peaceful over the medium to long term is if a stable equilibrium between the two powers is achieved. And the only way to get that is for each of these two 
big powers to to reach a position where it feels that its vital interests aren't being encroached on by the other. I would compare the current situation between the U.S. and China with the Cold War. And again, the Cold War, for many reasons, was not a very fun period of human history, but it was four plus decades of peace between two bitter ideological and geopolitical adversaries. And a good part of what kept the Cold War cold was that in Europe, there's sort of a symmetry between stakes and commitment. For the United States, it was vital to maintain a free and liberal Western Europe, to maintain a balance of power in Europe, to protect U.S. political and economic security interests. Whereas for the Soviets, it was crucial to maintain control over Eastern Europe because Eastern Europe was the conveyor belt to repeated invasions of Soviet territory over the course of the previous hundred odd years on the part of France and Germany. So the Soviets needed Eastern Europe, the United States needed Western Europe. And so they were able to construct commitments over territories that were vital, but not over ones that were non-vital. So the United States allied with Western Europe and NATO but it granted Eastern Europe to the Soviets as a sphere of influence. The Soviet Union insisted and would have fought World War III to maintain its control of Eastern Europe, and it allied with the East European communist puppet regimes, and it ostensibly granted the United States Western Europe as a sphere of influence. So it's like, I'm going to keep control of the things that are most important to me, you get to control the things that are most important to you, and will maintain deterrence because neither of us is challenging the other in their backyard. Now, you might say, well, in 1962, the Soviets did that in Cuba. The Soviet Union dispatched nuclear weapons to Cuba 90 miles off the coast of the United States. That was a big mistake, and it almost led to World War III. And eventually the Soviets backed down. They took the nukes out, and they realized, don't mess around in the other superpowers' backyard too much. You can do it a little bit, but not too much. So how can you replicate that sort of situation geopolitically in East Asia today, where the United States maintained cross administrations, you know, China has nothing to worry about. You know, the United States, the dominant power in East Asia militarily, it controls the sea lanes of communication, the airspace, right? Don't worry, we're just maintaining a rules-based liberal international order. So why would China have any problem with a continuation of a state of affairs that has been very good for China over the last several decades, right? China's become the second richest country in the world under U.S. hegemony. The problem is those same U.S. forces that maintain the rules-based order can also be used to coerce China to impose a blockade if the United States disagrees with something that China's done. Think of what the United States did to Japan in 1941, imposing crippling economic sanctions on the Japanese because it didn't like Japan's expansion in China. So the U.S. government can insist all it wants that it's just maintaining a universal rules-based order in Asia or anywhere else, but it's just not the case. The U.S. is protecting its interests, but it's defining those interests in such expansive terms that China, any expansion ends up being sort of seen as a threat. So even if China sort of remilitarizes some uninhabited islands in the South China Sea, in Washington, alarm bells go off. Or if China, any attempt by China to expand its control territorially or influence, dominant influence in the region is seen by the United States as, as a provocation that could spark a war. We can't discount the costs associated with things like spheres of influence. So you could say, yes, by granting the Soviets a sphere of influence over Eastern Europe during the Cold War, the United States helped to prevent World War III. There were costs associated with that. The United States basically said, you know, it's okay that you guys are governed by a repressive, authoritarian, illegitimate communist regime. So there were big humanitarian costs associated with this sort of behavior. But at the same time, what's the alternative, right? The alternative was, what, fighting for Poland? 
right? That would have almost inevitably caused World War III. So I'm, I'm just trying to think, if the US and China are, are sort of reconstructing a new Cold War between themselves, how is the lay of the land different today in East Asia than it was in the cockpit of great power competition during the previous Cold War in Europe? And so I see some big differences. I see. Thank you. It definitely looks like there needs to be a grand bargain of sorts made between Beijing and Washington. But as of now, there's no clear pathway towards creating such a bargain. And not just that. I mean, if I could just sort of make things even bleaker than that, it's not that there's little consensus in either country in favor of a grand bargain. But even if the U.S. struck a grand bargain with China, who's to say that 10 or 20 years out when China is much more powerful than it is today, that it doesn't just tear up the grand bargain and throw it in the garbage? So the credibility of a grand bargain itself would be something that would be quite shaky, given that the U.S. power is in relative decline and Chinese power is in relative ascent. So why would China uphold an agreement it signed you know, 20 years earlier when it was much less powerful than it is 20 years later? That's sort of an extra layer of complication. Indeed. I suppose it's also why historians and scholars sometimes hesitate to draw parallels between the Cold War and the current situation between the US and China, because the lessons that you draw might not be really applicable in the current context. They may not. As social scientists or as historians, you have to be very careful not to overdraw historical analogies or comparisons. So some scholars have said, wait a minute, the US-China competition is very different and much less dangerous than the Cold War because it's predominantly a maritime competition. And so the US and China could be engaged in maritime skirmishes one against the other that won't necessarily escalate in the same way that a a confrontation in Berlin or across the border between the two Germanys would have done it. So there may be sort of geographic aspects of the current competition that are less likely to escalate as quickly. It's possible. Although in that case, thinking about Europe, I note that a lot of European powers, they've come up with their own Indo-Pacific strategies or have joined up with the US in unilateral groupings such as AUKUS. How do you think that changes the equation between the US and China? Yeah, I think that Chinese grand strategy in the last decade or so has been extremely self-injurious. Previously, China had pursued a policy of peaceful rise. It seems like the last 10, 12 years, China has abandoned that strategy in favor of the like Kaiser Wilhelm II, Weltpolitik, to hell with everyone else. We're going to get our place in the sun. And so it's behaved in a very aggressive and bullying fashion. And so the region's smaller powers have been alienated and disaffected and scared. So they're increasingly embracing the United States. There's sort of a paradox here in that The United States is more powerful, it's bigger, richer, and its military is much stronger than China's. But the U.S. is much farther away than China is from East Asia. So all of that power looks less threatening to the states of this region. China is less powerful at present than the United States, but it's right here geographically. It's right next door. Even though it's less powerful in aggregate terms, its location makes it much more threatening to the smaller countries of the region. And increasingly, it seems that Beijing appears desensitized to that fact. States generally tend to underestimate the extent to which they threaten others. They tend to overestimate the extent to which others threaten them. This might be kind of classified under rising power syndrome. Rising great powers are very insecure. You know, They're getting very, very powerful very quickly, but the more powerful they get, the more they realize that 
the international system in many ways is rigged against them, right? The norms, the rules, all those things. They want to get what's theirs by right. They want, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm called Germany's place in the sun, right? China wants its place in the sun. It doesn't want to have to compromise with little powers, right? It wants to be able to get what it's owed. You can kind of see that it's sort of why international politics is not exactly the most optimistic realm. It's a very tragic realm. The United States was no less belligerent back when it was rising to great power status in the late 19th and early 20th century than China is today. It does seem pretty grim, though. Do you have any closing words that might offer some hope or something? When push comes to shove, I agree with the thesis that Robert Art, political scientist at Brandeis University, came up with. And that was that the United States and China don't have any deep conflicts of interest between them. There isn't any interest that both countries would posit is a vital slash existential interest that they can't share between them or they can't split. The United States and China do not share vital interests. They don't have a deep conflict of interest in territorial terms. There's some ideological rivalry in terms of China being authoritarian, more mercantilistic, but it's nothing near the sort of deep ideological rivalry that existed between the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. The U.S. and China are each other's largest trading partners, still, or second largest. So it's there are lots of reasons for this thing not to escalate too much. And the ultimate reason is that both countries are nuclear-armed great powers. They both have nuclear weapons that could cause inconceivable amounts of damage to the other if even just one of them landed on the other's territory. So in the event of a nuclear exchange between the US and China, even a small nuclear exchange, the consequences would be so dire that both countries have very strong, very compelling reasons to try and keep their conflict, keep their rivalry contained. There are also reasons for them to get along with each other. The need to cooperate to combat perhaps the biggest threat facing the planet, which is climate change. If the U.S. and China aren't on board in trying to resolve that matter, it won't get resolved. Any solution will be ineffectual. So there are a lot of reasons for these two countries to curb their competition for the sake of their own interests and their own survival, but for the sake of the planet as a whole. Indeed. Challenges might be high, but the stakes are higher. So I I do hope that there's some kind of resolution uh, that can be reached between the two of them. Yeah, if a fight breaks out, you're going to hit a threshold at which nuclear weapons enter the equation. And then that's when cooler heads are going to have to prevail. But you don't want to have a confrontation that rises even close to that threshold. That's true, too. Well, thank you for your time, Evan. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kevin. It was a pleasure once again. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If there are any questions or topics that you'd like us to tackle in the future, feel free to reach out to us on social media, such as our Twitter page or through email. Until then, stay safe and goodbye.